I invite you to open your Bibles to Isaiah 9. We're going to be looking at Isaiah 9, verse 8 through chapter 10, verse 4. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, we ask You now to open Your Word to us as we read it, as we seek to understand it, as we seek to hear from Your Spirit. Open Your Word to us and open our hearts to receive it as good soil. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Isaiah 9, verse 8 reads, The Lord has sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel, and all the people will know, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria, who say in pride and arrogance of heart, The bricks have fallen, but we will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. But the Lord raises the adversaries of Rezin against him and stirs up his enemies. The Syrians on the east and the Philistines on the west devour Israel with open mouth. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. The people did not turn to him who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts. So the Lord cut off from Israel head and tail, palm branch and reed in one day. The elder and honored man is the head, and the prophet who teaches lies is the tail. For those who guide this people have been leading them astray, and those who are guided by them are swallowed up. Therefore the Lord does not rejoice over their young men and has no compassion on their fatherless and widows. For everyone is godless and an evildoer, and every mouth speaks folly. For all this his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. For wickedness burns like a fire. It consumes briars and thorns. It kindles the thickets of the forest, and they roll upward in a column of smoke. Through the wrath of the Lord of hosts, the land is scorched, and the people are like fuel for the fire. No one spares another. They slice meat on the right, but are still hungry, and they devour on the left, but are not satisfied. Each devours the flesh of his own arm. Manasseh devours Ephraim. Ephraim devours Manasseh. Together they are against Judah. For all this, his anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decrees and the writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right, that widows may be their spoil and that they may make the fatherless their prey. What will you do on the day of punishment in the ruin that will come from afar? To whom will you flee for help and where will you leave your wealth? Nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. For all this... His anger has not turned away, and his hand is stretched out still. There's a Mother's Day text. Judgment and Mother's Day. What do these have to do with one another? What ties judgment and mothers together? And some of the little kids are thinking, I know. (laughs) But to be honest... I get intimidated as I was approaching this message the closer I got to the morning because it's pretty obvious I didn't choose this as a Mother's Day text. 
On the one hand, this is a powerful passage with big, important ideas we need about God's holiness and judgment. On the other hand, it's Mother's Day. It's a time to reflect on, with thankfulness on God's goodness to us through mothers. It is a day to celebrate them. For many of you ladies, to celebrate God's gift to you and His calling on your life as a mom. Today we should have flowers and treats and poetry. Well, we've got poetry. But this is not a happy poem. It's heavy. Some of you mothers are going through seasons of motherhood that have been heavy. And I don't want to stretch this text to try to make it say something it's not or to try to press moms into some rubric of this is God's judgment on your life. It's not. But I do want to note here that the Bible doesn't help us with the hard things in life by avoiding them. God equips us for the hard things in life, the hard times. God's Word equips us with the harder truths. I think in this context of another prophecy spoken to a young mother as the aged Simeon meets the infant Jesus and his parents in the temple. And he blesses them and he says to Mary, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also. Some mothers in our midst will have felt that piercing of the soul. Some of you mothers... As you look at a nation that looks increasingly like Isaiah, Israel in Isaiah 9 and 10, and you are fearing the, the fear that you are going to watch your kids be opposed because they're following Jesus. And you may feel that sword pierce your soul also. As we live in a society that looks increasingly like the nation of Israel here, we are going to face this opposition. But, but we're aware of that, right? Do we really need this text, this passage to tell us that? We look around, we read the news, and at a time when there's so much sin around us, so much to sadden the heart and sicken the soul, do we really need a sermon like this? That's a valid pastoral concern. One of the, the many helpful things in our recent Bible conference over Ecclesiastes, if you haven't listened to those messages, get on Sermon Audio, check out the messages by Dr. Brian Borgman. They were very helpful. One of the, re, the helpful things in that conference is to help us see that some of us are a little bit too serious. We don't know how to or we never get around to enjoying the gifts of God. We're so aware of our sin, we can't celebrate faithful work done in a good conscience. But we're also, and this can be in our same, the same heart, we're also able to underestimate the gravity of sin. We can at the same moment take ourselves too seriously and sin not seriously enough. Kids, kids, I want you to pay attention here because one of the sins that you are tempted to think is no big deal is dishonoring your mom. The Bible, when it speaks to kids, 
it has just a few things it says, like, children, obey your parents. That's It's one rule. you got one rule. Obey your parents. And yet, we think that it's, it's no big deal to like talk back to your parents, to ignore them when they tell you to do something. These are big deals. It's a big deal to show disrespect to your mom. And not just on Mother's Day. But our culture excuses these sins as common. Just part of being a kid. Just part of the teenage years. It happens. And we do the same with other sins. We excuse our anger as, I lost my cool. We excuse pornographic lust as, I I, I messed up. We come up with cute memes like the wine mom that disparage motherhood and wink at drunkenness as the only way to handle the responsibilities of being a parent. We don't want to let the devil rebrand rebellion. Sin is not just awkward. It's not just uncomfortable. It's not just disappointing or frustrating. Sin is sinful. Which means it's an offense against the holy God. That's a big deal. This brings us to the second pastoral concern with preaching this sermon. We aren't very good at soberly considering the sinfulness of sin without also indignantly condemning the sinner. We struggle to see the sinfulness of sin without demonizing the one we see or think we see committing that sin. Some of us are really eager to match the fury and force of God's wrath without being willing or even capable of coming close to matching His gentleness and long-suffering. We're like James and John. We want to call down fire from heaven to destroy the wicked, forgetting that it was not so long ago that we were in that crowd. Titus 3, 3 says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. That's who we were. And we're not so far from those sins that we can't understand the struggle. We can't feel our own need for grace. So there are dangers with a, a, a passage like this, with a sermon like this. But God has impressed on my heart that we don't then avoid these passages, but we actually press into them to understand, okay, how should a Christian think about sin and wrath and judgment? And as we reflect on this passage, what we see is that the sinfulness, the sinfulness of sin, the evil of sin is so great that even great judgment does not satisfy God's justice. That's the point of this refrain we get four times. For all this, his anger has not turned away and his hand is stretched out still. Wave after wave in this passage, this indictment crashes against Israel. The sin in Israel and the sin in our modern day. 
Wave after wave we hear this and maybe we feel this wave after wave crashing against our hearts. The strength here in this hurricane force winds of God's wrath, it speaks to the fact that God takes sin very, very seriously. And so we grieve and we repent and we wonder. We wonder in amazement because for those of us in Christ Jesus, the storm in chapters 9 and 10 has stopped. The waves have been stilled. Almost like somebody spoke to those waves and said, Peace, be still. The winds have died. The sun has come out. The good news that's implicit in our passage is that this incessant, unanswerable judgment has been answered. The unstoppable wrath here has somehow been stopped. And our appreciation of this rescue will only correspond to our appreciation of this wrath. The good news of the Gospel is not that we have grossly underestimated, overestimated holiness. We haven't discovered that God is actually super chill. The good news is that Yahweh is as earnest in His love as He is serious in His wrath. And so a passage like this calls us to a sober consideration of the sinfulness of sin. And we're going to see this in three things. The sinfulness of sin we'll see in the cause of the judgment, the extent of the judgment, and the insufficiency of the judgment. And if any of you are watching your, your watches, the first one is much thicker than the latter two points. And the last point, uh, we'll move very quickly. So first, we have the cause of the judgment. The obvious starting place for a sober consideration of the sinfulness of sin is simply to identify it, to name it as sin. We don't repent of mistakes. We repent of sins. We aren't forgiven for mess-ups. We're forgiven for sins. We've got to name the thing. And as God levels this judgment against Israel, He points out the sins that have caused His wrath to burn against them. We see in our passage, maybe if you were listening, we see pride and arrogance. We see lies and foolish talk. We see a cannibalistic self-indulgence that destroys all loyalties, all relationships. We see oppression and abuse of the weak. We see a lot of things that remind us of home. We're reminded of home because as we look around at our culture, we see these same things in the world that surrounds us. And we grieve. And we should. Israel's had leaders like us who were useless and worse than useless. Now look at um, chapter 9, verse um, 15. The elder and honored man is the head, the prophet who teaches lies is the tale. For those who guide this people have been leading them astray, and those who are guided by them are swallowed up. Kind of familiar, right? This, this sounds a bit like the, the day you might look, re, find in the news. Um, it astounds me how little our society cares about truth. We have all these talking heads, 
All these people who are supposed to be the smartest people when it comes to politics or economics or science and medicine. And there's so much stupidity. You know, the biblical name for stupidity is foolishness. And that foolishness flows out of this godlessness. For everyone is godless and an evildoer and every mouth speaks folly. We live in a culture that has embraced moral insanity because it's rejected the God who would have given us morals. A God that has rejected any sense of truth because we've rejected the God who gives us His truth. Or consider the injustice we see in chapter 10, verse 1 and 2. Woe to those who decree iniquitous decree and the writers who keep writing oppression to turn aside the needy from justice and to rob the poor of my people of their right that widows may be their spoil and that they may make the fatherless their prey. And if we look around at our culture, don't we see the weak, those who cannot protect themselves, being taken advantage of, being destroyed, whether it's through abortion or through policies that let kids make really dumb decisions about mutilating their bodies when they're just confused. One of these things, the things that our passage this morning does is to assure us as we look around at our world today is to assure us that God does not view these sins lightly. As we look around at a godless culture running rampant, what seems like inaction on God's part is actually His active restraint. It is not... What we're seeing is not His moral indifference. It is His mercy, which then gives us hope right now in this moment to cry out to God for our nation. I said that one of the things this passage does is to assure us that God cares about these things and will judge the wicked men and women. But I don't believe that that's the only reason God gives us passages like this. There's a Christianity that spends far too much time focused on the sins of others, forgetting the sin that lies closer to heart. We can end up like the Pharisee in the temple praying, God, I thank You that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, those people. I thank You that I am not like them. There's a danger in overstating the difference between them and us. And if we're honest as we read a passage like this, these sins are far too familiar. And if you think that's overstated, exaggerated, I mean, you might look, you might look at verse, uh, chapter 9, verse 20. They slice meat on the right, but they are still hungry. And they devour on the left, but they are not satisfied. Each devours the flesh of his own arm. Christians don't do that. Well, we, sh- we shouldn't. But somehow the Spirit still thought it was important to give us Galatians 5.15. But if you bite and devour one another, 
Watch out that you are not consumed by one another. Christians can be some of the sweetest people in the world until you disagree with us. Now, there is great grace in Rockport. There is. You are. You really are. There is, are, is so much proof of the Spirit at work to make you genuinely loving even in the midst of disagreement. In fact, that's one of the reasons why as your pastors, we are eager to think about, okay, how can we think about an expansion that allows more people to come into this? Because the culture that God has built in this people and in your hearts is one that we think other people should experience and should learn from. But if we're honest, the pandemic wasn't particularly easy in this area, right? And so there is room for us to say, okay, Lord, I still need to grow in these things. Our sin never starts out laying out its end game. It's just like, here's what we're doing. Um, we're going to... Uh, let's go rob the, the poor. Let's, let's take advantage of widows. That, that sounds like a good plan. Your sin will not come to you and suggest that. It will come to you with chapter 9, verse 10. The bricks have fallen for us, but we will build with dressed stones. The sycamores have been cut down, but we will put cedars in their place. This resourcefulness and resilience looks really, really good. Parents, we would look to our kids and be like, Good job. I'm glad you're finding solutions. But there is a reliance here that's actually rooted in what? The previous verse, pride and arrogance of heart. There is a reliance on self and a stubborn refusal, as verse 13 says, to turn to him who struck them. Sometimes our resourcefulness is just godlessness. Acting as if God's presence and power and purity didn't really matter. They're insignificant. And godlessness, what we find here in this passage, is that godlessness is really the root of every sin. By dismissing the Creator, we lose, as we noted, our grounding for morality and truth. And so that's what we see in uh, 9 verse 17 that everyone is is godless and an evildoer and every mouth speaks folly. These things are all wrapped up. When you're godless, then you have no basis on which not to do the evil towards somebody else, not to take advantage of them. And what you want is not the truth that God gives, but the reality that you create in your own mind. So... We see some of the things about the, the sinfulness of sin seen in the, seen in the cause of the judgment here. We also see it in the extent of the judgment. There is this circular movement in these hurricane winds of God's wrath. Because God takes the evil of our sins so seriously, there is always judgment. And that judgment shows us 
how seriously God views these sins. And this, this is really what caught my attention, why I was drawn to this passage. This judgment is so intense. It's, and it's meant to be. It's meant to put on display God's fury against sin. Fury, wrath, punishment, these are things that in our modern society, we, we've lost a little bit. Our, our criminal justice system is big on rehabilitation, and that's a great aim, but we seem to have lost the fact that sometimes a punishment might be right just because of the statement it makes about the value of the thing that was broken, the person who was violated. Sometimes a punishment is right just because it says that person, that thing was valuable. And here in our passage, God is saying, my purity, my holiness, it matters. It is valuable. And yet, even here as God does that, He still shows mercy. There is mercy even here in this judgment. There was opportunity to see the sin and repent. In fact, that's one of the things the, the people of Israel are rebuked for is they, they compounded their guilt missing this opportunity to repent. We read that in uh, verse 13, "...the people did not turn to Him who struck them, nor inquire of the Lord of hosts." This should have been a wake-up call. And some of you are getting a wake-up call. Particularly if you have been indulging some pet sin or if you have been ignoring the call of the the Savior and Lord Jesus. You, You should know that Yahweh is extremely long suffering, but He is not endlessly so. Psalm 7 verse 12 says, If a man will not repent, God will wet his sword. He has bent and readied his bow, making his arrows fiery shafts. That makes you think of Hebrews. Truly, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. But this is where we find Israel in this passage. I say Israel, we're probably talking about the northern kingdom of Israel. As you may know, the kingdom of Israel was split into Israel and Judah. At this point, Israel has actually been beating up on Judah. You see that in verse 21. Manasseh and Ephraim, they're fighting amongst themselves. The only thing they can agree on is, let's pick on Judah. And so, we're talking about the northern kingdom of Israel. And for hundreds of years, God had sent prophets to call this people to repentance. Most notably, you've got Elijah and Elisha. You've also got Amos and Hosea. Um, Jonah was from the northern uh, kingdom of Israel. But now, they've ignored all that. And judgment has come. So that's why our passage opens up. Verse 8, The Lord has sent a word against Jacob, and it will fall on Israel. And and the judgment we see is represented in our passage by by four waves, four stanzas in this poem, but four successive waves. In an excellent commentary on the book of Isaiah, Alec Machir summarizes these waves as national disaster, 
political collapse, social anarchy, and moral perversion. I think that's a good summary. Um, these things, they, to, to say they're successive, they aren't perfectly chronological. There is a building on each judgment, but a lot of these overlap. And they, so there's, there, there is this building. There's meant to be this cumulative effect as God layers judgment upon judgment. It, it reminds me of, of the plagues on Egypt. Have you ever read through the plagues of Egypt and you're just you're like, God, isn't this a bit overkill? Uh, you, you read the, the last five uh, judgments and you have God kills all their livestock. All the animals are dead. Well, most of all the animals. There's still some. So when the boils come, the animals get the boils as well. You're like, God, the, the animal, the the, uh, the, the the poor animals, the beast, and, and then then the hail comes, and any animals that were left out in the fields at that point, get, they get knocked down, and, and, and so God uses the hail to wipe out the Egyptians, uh, more animals, and completely decimate their fields. You're like, okay, and now He took care of the fields as well, but just in case, He sends the locusts as well, <laughs> and you're just left thinking, God. Aren't you just showing off at this point? And the answer is yes, he is. That's the point. Both in Exodus and in our passage this morning, God is plastering up a billboard and he's making it clear that he takes sin seriously. And he is not a God to be trifled with. And so we have here, running through these things, we have national disaster. I mean, God could have used um, any number of things. He could have used uh, a pestilence or, or a pandemic. He, he uses here war. And so we read in, in chapter 9, verse 11, the Lord raises the adversaries of Rezin against him and stirs up his enemies. The Syrians on the east and the Philistines on the west devour Israel with open mouth. And the irony of that is that God uses the very object of Israel's sin as the tool of His judgment against Him. Israel had united with Rezin, the king of Syria, in this faithless alliance, hoping to hold off the Assyrian threat and maybe establish themselves. We've got this little section of the Middle East. But instead of giving a sense of security and stability and and rule, they get a target on their back. And not only that, but their their allies then turn and attack them, which is what sin does. Sin promises you so much and it will not deliver. It promises you life, but it will bring death. It promises you safety, but it will destroy any hope. And so that's what we see here. We not only see this national disaster, but it's built upon with political collapse. When God wants to judge a people, He takes away good leaders. And when He wants to judge severely, He also takes away the bad leaders. They're like, really? Yes, because when He takes away the ones we said were bad, we find, oh, it it can get worse. Now we have the really bad leaders. 
Which you see, you can uh, make a note, read Isaiah 3, where you find this idea that when there's this leadership vacuum, people will put anybody in. They end up taking the youths, the infants. Infants are the rulers. And the idea in Isaiah 3 is this is a judgment because of the... I mean, how do infants act? Just give me what I want because I want it right now. And so uh, it, it can get worse, and it does here in Israel. National disaster, political collapse. We have social anarchy in uh, chapter 9, verse 18. Um, wickedness burns like a fire. And then read down a little to the end of 19. And the people are like fuel for the fire. No one spares another. So you, you've got this terrible situation where just everybody... This, this society is tearing itself apart. Again, sound familiar? We see some of that. And, and, and you've got, kind of hand in hand with this social anarchy, you've got a moral perversion which causes, there, there is no basis for morality, for thinking that the widows and the poor should, should be, have compassion shown to them. But instead, in um, the first couple of verses of chapter 10, you see that they, there's just this utter disregard um, for kindness. And so all these things build on one another. And one of the things you notice is that God answers our sin with judgment and part of the judgment He delivers is giving us over to our sin. Almost like something you would have read in Romans 1 where the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. And because... Men would not acknowledge God. It says in verse 24, Therefore God gave them up to the lust of their hearts, to impurity, to the dishonoring of their, their bodies among themselves. God gives them in verse 26 up to dishonorable passions. And in verse 28, Since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. This is how God judges a people, is He gives them what they want and lets them destroy themselves. And we look around at this in our culture, and we say, God, when are you going to judge this wickedness? And the sad and scary thing is, He already is. And yet, He still holds out this opportunity to our people and to us to repent. He has not completed this. We have not gotten to the end of, of chapter 10 or verse 4 where nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. And so we cry out, God, sin judgment. But what we want is a judgment on those guys where my life is still nice. Well, the people of Israel, the faithful followers of Yahweh here, their life wasn't nice. They had Assyria beating down on their door as well. They might have had their lands, their farm, raided by the, the Philistines or the Syrians. See, the problem is we want justice. We want judgment but because of what I value for me. And here what we're learning is when God delivers judgment and justice, it's because of what God values, His holiness. 
And, and what we want to do is we want to come and match that. And we want to join God in crying for justice, not because we're bothered by the sin of the world, but because we're broken by the sin of our culture. And we want our prayers to come out of that. Okay, so we've got the source or the cause of the judgment. We've got the extent of the judgment. Now quickly we'll look at the insufficiency of the judgment. This really is just what it says. It should have struck you as we read this passage. The judgment never works. It, it never finishes the job. As each wave of devastating judgment crashes, we are reminded, for all this, His anger has not turned away and His hand is stretched out still. You get to the rune in chapter 10, verse 4, and nothing remains but to crouch among the prisoners or fall among the slain. But still, for all this, His anger is not turned away and His hand is stretched out still. This is meant to teach us something. Because this isn't what we normally experience in human affairs. Right? Some of you know the experience. You've got that boss. He gets ticked about something and he goes on a tear. He's in a rage. And he's yelling at people and firing people. And you know that if you can just keep quiet and keep your head down for maybe like 15 minutes, it's all going to blow over. Now maybe your boss has a little more stamina. He can go the whole morning. Um... But why? Well, it's not because we're more gracious than God. No. It's because the source of that anger, that indignation, is we're frustrated. God's justice, God's judgment, God's wrath is not rooted because He's frustrated or irritated at our sin. He hates our sin. That's, that's a much more serious thing Our indignation can't match God's because it doesn't flow from the deep, perfect holiness His does. So what we see here in this passage, in this this prophecy, is that because of our sin being so sinful, there's no self-improvement, no self-reliance, no self-abasement, no penance, will answer this wrath. We've earned this wrath. And if we ended at chapter 10, verse 4, we might despair for Israel and for ourselves. But we read on to chapter 10, verse 20, and it says, In that day the remnant of Israel and the survivors of the house of Jacob will no more lean on Him who struck them, but will lean on the Lord. He's going to bring them back. And then you read on in 11... Verse 11 says that the Lord will extend His hand again. This time it's no longer extended in wrath, but it's extended to show mercy and to bring His people home. And you're thinking something else is at play here. And then you keep going, and all throughout Isaiah you see this, but you get to Isaiah 53. And verses 5 and 6 says, But He was pierced for our transgression, He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon Him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with His wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to His own way, and the Lord has laid on Him the iniquity of us all. 
The evil of our sin is so great that even great judgment does not satisfy God's justice. But Jesus does. The great justice that He poured out on Jesus was able to satisfy it. It was able to answer this unanswerable wrath. The problem we found in our passage in Isaiah 9 and 10 has been solved. Jesus paid it all. And He gets to the cross in John 19, verse 30, and He says, It's finished. For all this, His anger has now turned away. His hand is no longer stretched out in wrath against you if you are in Christ. But now His hand is stretched out to show you grace in the Lord Jesus. So because of Jesus and what He does to answer this unanswerable wrath, there is hope for us. Because of Jesus, there is hope for our nation. Because of Jesus, there is hope, mothers, when you fail your kids. And there is hope, kids, when you sin against your mother. There is hope that God will show the same mercy then as He gathers His people from every nation and tribe and tongue. Let's look to this Lord and give Him thanks. Father, help us to live this week with an awareness that You take sin very, very seriously, yet with a matched awareness that You have so much mercy towards us. Please help us in these things. In Jesus' name, amen.